You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. All right, welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast, and today's episode is the collapse of an empire, right? So this is a follow-up from a um, little tidbit I did last week about what is going on in Atlanta with the amount of uh, violence that's happening. And that violence is just a small portion of what is really going on, which is the collapse of an empire. All right. So this is really nothing new, but this is something that needs to be reiterated often. So as we are seeing the symptoms of a colla- uh, of a collapse we keep reminding ourselves of what is really happening okay so this particular podcast will discuss the collapse of an empire all right so we're going to go through how the infrastructure is collapsing um the economic collapse uh, you know, which is leading to, of course, job losses, homelessness. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about the violence associated with this as well. Okay. Uh, and then just the overall general social collapse. All right. So let's start with the basics. Let's start with the infrastructure. Okay. So America, and and I'm going to focus on the Americas, although we could certainly use this around the world in particular, but I will focus for this podcast for the sake of time on the Americas since the America is viewed as the world leading power. America is the Rome 2.0. All right. So, uh, There's plenty of information out there. This was from CNN from 2019. America's infrastructure is crumbling and these people are suffering because of it. The fabric of America is crumbling. The American Society of Civil Engineer gives the nation's infrastructure a D+. That's the roads and the bridges we drive on every day, the airports we use for business and vacation travel, and the schools where we send our children to learn. And newer networks critical to modern life, like broadband internet, haven't even reached many areas yet. All right. So this article by CNN, they did in, uh, they published it in 2019. Now, I know I keep bringing this up, but it is something that should be a huge awakening to us all. Because that infrastructure piece that they didn't mention in this article, and one that is really, really precious, is the electrical grid. 
And as we just witnessed a couple of weeks ago, we literally had an electrical grid system collapse because of weather in Texas. Okay? And because of that failure of that electrical grid during an ice storm, I might add, okay, during an ice storm, people died. And not only did people die, you had additional damage to infrastructure and uh, and uh, buildings, homes that will take additional funds to correct. All right. And in the process of that, folks were displaced from their homes. So you might as well add to this list of crumbling infrastructure is how the electrical grid is very, very vulnerable. Because without that electrical grid, you're not going to have broadband internet anyway. All right, so President Donald Trump declared at his inauguration We will build new roads and highways and bridges and airports and tunnels and railways all across our wonderful nation. Okay, so that happened when? When did that happen during his presidency? Okay. At least seven times his White House has declared that the chosen theme of a week would be infrastructure. But each time the issue has become lost in other events, often generated by the president himself. Okay, so remember, I am reading from CNN, so y'all already know how that goes with the slant of hand with their opinion of Trump card. You know, although I'm not a supporter myself of any of them, but just wanting to point out the bias because I can guarantee that Biden is not going to start up any infrastructure programs either, any major infrastructure programs, all right? Money, whether through taxes, tolls, or private investments, is the only way to fix the problem. The engineers group says $4.6 trillion. Let me say that again. trillion is needed for improvements in the next decade. The Democrats said uh, they and Trump had agreed on $2 trillion price tag for an infrastructure plan, which would only be a part of a national solution that could also include state, local, and private action, but precious little has been achieved. For Americans who have... (coughs) To use the aging, fragile structures every day, it is beyond time for investments and fixes. All right, now notice or take note of this $4.6 trillion. This was before the uh, pandemic. And they had dedicated $2 trillion then. So because of the pandemic, you know that $2 trillion is out the door as well to fix uh, 
to do infrastructure projects. So here are some of the things that are being affected. Roads and bridges. Sylvia Campos loves her 2011 red Nissan Cube, but she says the roads in Michigan are testing its limits. Her car makes a rattling sound after she hit a pothole on one of Detroit's highways recently. It's not the first time. Campo says she also hit a pothole in the middle of a highway where traffic means you can't safely swerve to avoid them. One time she blew out her tires, she says. Every time I'm on the freeway, I'm scared, she tells CNN. But you can't do nothing about it because you've just got to take the hit. You can't go to the right or or you can't get to the left because you're going to have an accident. It's terrible. They need to fix them. All right. So now those of you that live in the colder climates up north, you know, we already know what the game is. As soon as stuff thaws out after that freeze and it warms up, that's when those (coughs) potholes and stuff start developing. And they are pretty deadly. They are pretty deadly and can literally do a lot of damage to your car. Some places have decided to take action by themselves. Neighboring Ohio raised its gas tax to fund road fixes, the state's Department of Transportation says. The nation's roads got a D in the latest engineering report card. Michigan and New York were the worst, both getting a D minus. Okay, so next on the list are schools, sweating or freezing. Uh, Mark, <clears throat> Mark D, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, had to clear my throat there. Sorry about that. Mark D I T, 13, goes to school five times as old as he. Many of the fixtures at his school have not been replaced since they were new in 1954. There's been so much lead found in the water that several fountains are shut down and students help flush the system by turning on all faucets throughout the school for two minutes every week. That's not the only problem with water. When it rains, the roof leaks. Sometimes there's water coming through the ceiling in vast quantities, he says. Usually there's a certain portion of the class that uh, that's like blocked off because of a leak or because of a ripped off or ripped up floors. And he says the uh, drastically different temperatures because of the old system make it hard to learn. Imagine trying to learn algebra or reading a book while you're sweating or you're freezing to death. All right, so I'm not going to go over that, the rest of that, the infrastructure, but the nation schools by the uh, American Engineer Society, they're giving the schools a D plus. All right, now just real quick on the schools because I had to point this out to quite a bit of folks that live in the suburbs and they live in either a middle class or upper middle class. 
And they do not see the connection between why their particular schools have certain things and certain programs and others don't. And what everybody seems to forget at the end of the day, major funding for schools come through what? Property taxes. So meaning if the majority of the homeowners are in these middle to upper middle class areas and the values of the homes are a certain amount higher, that means the higher the property taxes will be and a portion of those, a large portion of property tax go to schools. Right. So it's no wonder that when you are looking at what they call inner city schools or rural schools or schools that are in poor neighborhoods, the resources are slim to none. Okay, or very, very limited because of that direct link of funding via property tax. Okay, so broadband internet, uh, waiting, 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 and waiting. Amanda Pitchard runs a flower farm on the outskirts of Cleveland, Tennessee, about 30 miles from Chattanooga. She attracts customers online, but she often cannot see her own website. While she has uh, municipal utilities for water, electricity, and so on, there is no internet service. The cell phone service is spotty, so even uploading something to social media can take 15 or 20 minutes, and the dream of uploading videos to show customers what's available or grow interest in the farm seems unattainable right now. We sometimes have to go into town with better internet service to even upload information on our website to reach our clients. It also impacts Amanda's husband, Bob, and their three children who sometimes end up doing homework in their car in a parking lot in town to be able to get online. So they're saying uh, 24 million Americans don't have broadband access, according to the Federal Communications Commission. All right. So, I mean, that one, it is what it is, and we all know what that is, that if it is not profitable for these uh, internet companies to lay the particular cabling down to get service to these areas, they just simply will not do it. Next, airports. This should be self-explanatory for anyone that has done even just a little bit of travel. Okay, Um, we know LAX. Oh, my God, y'all. LAX is the straight up pits of hell. (laughs) I mean, you could look at it and and see that it looks from the 60s looking like, you know, an episode uh, out of the uh, the Jetsons with the way that the airport is shaped. And as long as I can remember, we're talking 20 years worth. It's always under construction, all right? That's including, so that's L.A., 
I'll put that on New York's um, LaGuardia. That sucks also. Always um, under construction. Uh, remember like my second time going to New York and the doggone belt broke the the uh, belt that carries the luggage to, around the corner. It straight up broke. And it was like the last flight in, so we're all like climbing on the belt to pull out our, our luggage, right? Um, so they're saying, Deborah Flint, CEO of Los Angeles World Airport, wants Congress to allow airports to charge each passenger a little more to fix the problem. Uh, I don't think so, Miss Flint. That's you all's business. You better charge uh, the airlines and keep it pushing. So LAX and other airports across the country have infrastructure that has or needed updating for the last 10, 20 years. And we're now in a position where we have to do them because our airports are failing. No crap, LAX. All right. And and LA is going to show up in this particular podcast quite a few times. It's just the symptom of California in general, and L.A. is right on that list of grossly mismanagement, no planning, etc. All right, so back to what Deborah is saying. If the facilities have people waiting in long queues and line because, you know, we don't have sufficient facilities for them to be processed, or we haven't been able to invest in technology that allows that experience to be faster, faster, that does a disservice to all of us. No, Deborah, what does a disservice to all of us is you all have been allowing the airlines not to pay what they need to pay to support the infrastructure. So let's not sit here and pretend why these U.S. airports are dumps. Okay, because the airlines are trying to keep their costs at a certain point. And you could do a little research because airlines are struggling to, in some cases, stay afloat. And as a matter of fact, during the pandemic, they were the ones that needed a bailout. Because their particular business model is a failure. Huh. So... All of that expanding that particular airlines were doing, it was really for waste because their margins have gotten worse and worse. So meaning, although the passengers have increased, the number of passengers per year have increased, the price point that they're able to charge has decreased because of competition, and it's not making it up in volume. So what would have been the better business model, airlines? Would the better business model would have been perhaps to stick with keeping your prices higher and those that can afford to fly, fly, and therefore they have a pleasant experience? And then in the process, you're profitable. 
So I have no sympathy for airports because that cost of making sure that you stay modern should solely be on the airlines. An airline should be taking that cost and passing it to the customers. And if the customers can't afford it, then that means they don't need to fly. Okay, so all around, it was a bad business model. Okay, so she's trying, this lady from LAX is trying to charge people. Uh, Flint Airport executives want the federal cap on the passenger facility charge to be raised from $4.50 a rate uh, up to $8.50 per flight. Frankly, I don't think passengers would even necessarily know that they're paying for it, she said. Uh, That would be a no, ma'am. It does not matter whether passengers feel they need to pay for it. You all let that airport get in that particular shape, okay? So um, those are some of the things that they're listing in this article on infrastructure. So we're going to move right on. Let's get into the bankruptcy, the bankruptcies that cities um, have faced over the last couple of years, right? So this is America's largest cities are practically broke. This is out of Forbes magazine. 63 out of America's most popular 75 cities do not have enough money to pay all their bills. Chicago-based municipal finance watchdog Truth in Accounting revealed the stark news in its third annual financial state of the cities. According to TIA, that's Truth in Accounting, this means that to balance the budget, elected officials have not included the true cost of government in their budget calculations and have pushed costs onto future taxpayers. TIA divides the amount of money needed to pay bills by the number of city taxpayers to come up with what it calls taxpayer burden. Based on uh, these accounting folks, truth in accounting uh, grading methods or methodology, for the second year in a row, not a single one of the 75 cities received an A. Truth in Accounting, however, was unable to rank and grade two of the most populous cities, Newark and Jersey City in New Jersey, because unfortunately, they do not issue annual financial reports that follow generally accepted accounting principles. So here's their grading scale, the Truth in Accounting folks' grading scale. A is a taxpayer surplus greater than $10,000. And y'all, you know, that's pretty doggone sad. That, now, now, let's think about how sad that is. Let's think about how sad that is, that that's considered an A. If they have $10,000 extra after paying all of its expenses. 
This is a major city, family. You would think that this $10,000 surplus is for a middle-class family. Are you kidding me? So that's their A. B, taxpayer surplus between $100 and $10,000. They're saying 12 cities met that. So no cities met grade A, by the way. My bad. I forgot to say that. No cities got an A. Okay, so you had 12 cities that had between $100 and $10,000 left over after paying the bills. C, taxpayer burden between zero and 4,900, 24 cities. D, taxpayer burden between five and 20,000, 31 cities. F, taxpayer burden greater than 20,000 cities. I'm sorry, $20,000. And that was eight cities. The 75 most populous cities total unfunded debt is approximately 33 billion. Most of this debt comes from unfunded retiree benefits promises such as retiree health care and debt pensions. Whoa. Did y'all catch that? Total unfunded debt, $3,300, not $3,300, $330 billion, I apologize, $330 billion. And most of that unfunded debt are retiree benefits, health care, and pensions. So... The blank is about to hit the fan as you have your baby boomers that are starting now to retire in a large numbers. So these cities that have had their pensions a part of their salary packages and in some cases probably the particular employees had to contribute to their pensions. You mean to tell me they don't even have that funding set aside? Woo! What happens when those cities go bankrupt? You better believe that if that is the largest unfunded debt, They're going to be including retirees' benefits, so meaning pensions and health care, in a part of that bankruptcy. So they're either going to do like a reduced form or get rid of it completely, right? So if you work for these cities and you're near retirement age, Hmm, you better take that into consideration. All right. And really, really do some management. I don't know, you know, if that means retiring early to get your stuff. Whatever the case may be. Cashing out, I don't know. But 
It's something you should consider, especially if you are in one of those cities that's essentially they're bankrupt, they're underwater. Okay. All right. Unfortunately, one of the ways cities help make their budgets look balanced is by shortchanging public pension funds. Presently, pension debt accounts for $189 billion, and other post-employment benefits, mainly retiree health care liabilities, is about $139 billion. So Irvine, California, Charlotte, North Carolina, Washington, D.C., Lincoln, Nebraska, and Fresno, California are the uh, cities with the highest level of surplus. Okay. All right. Um, So I'm surprised anything Cali made it on there when it, uh, as it relates to surplus. Okay, and then um, it says for the second year in a row, Irvine has been ranked in uh, the Truth in Accounting's uh, analysis. It has $617 million available in assets to pay $240 million worth of bills. This means that there is a $377 million surplus, which is about $4,400 surplus per taxpayer. However, Irvine is hiding. Ooh, child, here we go. Irvine is hiding 3.6 million of retiree healthcare debt from its balance sheet. Wow. Irvine received a B for its state of finances. A B is given to cities with a taxpayer surplus that is between one hundred and uh, ten thousand. Okay, so that's very interesting. So it it appears that all of these cities they're hiding the uh, the costs for the retirees fund. Now I know some people complain about such a large commitment for retirees when it's concerning the city employees and the state employees. Now, I'm just going to say this. You know, having been a contractor for quite some time now and uh, from time to time working on um, city, county, and state contracts, yeah, it is not like they're kicking it up and living as a matter of fact, if you are a worker, so city and state and county worker, you are not getting top dollar for the job that you are in. Your particular salary is under the market. And that's hence why a lot of professional people will not take a uh, job from those particular um, agencies because of that. We're talking 10, 20,000 minimum difference in salary. All right. So I'm saying all that to say these folks, they've earned their pensions. 
They've earned those pensions because for years they have been paid under market value. And it doesn't even matter if it's a new job. It is still under market. All right? So I I would hope that that particular truth comes out as taxpayers are complaining about these particular pensions. If they look at the cost of the salaries, those folks have earned their money. And it would be most certainly sad if they are cheated out of that. So let's go and let's move on. The cities in the worst fiscal condition are New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, Honolulu, and San Fran. These cities, like many states and cities in the U.S., have large unfunded pension liabilities, which are greatly affected by the volatility of pension assets. Unfortunately, to achieve higher rates of return, government pensions plans have increased their allocations to higher to riskier assets. According to the Nelson Rockefeller Institution of Government, two-thirds of public pensions plan assets are now invested in equity-like investments up from one quarter in um, 1970. Okay. So uh, New York, they, they kind of show a graph, a bar chart of bottom sinkhole cities in New York. Whew, child, New York is in the worst condition. Chicago is second, Philly third, Honolulu is next, and then San Fran last. Okay, um, so... All right, I'm not going to read the rest of this for the sake of time, but it also kind of goes into the taxpayer burden and it shows how it has increased uh, rapidly (coughs) over time. Okay, and um, anybody in Chicago, it's, it's interesting because a uh, few people in Chicago have noted how a lot of the programs, uh, state-funded programs, are just like null and void now. I know a younger person um, I was talking to, we so happened to went to the same uh, college, but of course I was way before her time. And she was telling me that particular college, their enrollment rate, dropped drastically because the state funding dropped. And it was to the point where the college almost shut down. Uh, They had dorms that they couldn't open up, uh, a lot of classes that just couldn't go on because of that funding. And then also um, I had someone talking about the property taxes in the city of Chicago. And I'm like, really? Now, I know New York's property taxes. Oh, my God, they're off the chain. Jersey's property taxes are off the chain also. So meaning, let's say if you pay off your home, you know, you're paying $20,000, $30,000 in property tax. Well, isn't that equivalent to having a mortgage or paying rent? 
We're talking per year, twenty to thirty thousand dollars. Okay, same with Chicago. Chicago has gotten to that point also. You know, although property values in some cases, uh, now they're starting to level out in the cities because people are now starting to move back out of the cities because of the pandemic. Uh, but even if you looked at buying a foreclosed property, let's say, and you're able to pay flat out cash for that property. If you look at the property taxes, you're like, you've got to be blanking me, right? And I just did a quick research, you know, I did it about six months ago based on what folks were telling me. And I was just looking at different neighborhoods across uh, Chicago, in the city of Chicago, in the um, suburb of Chicago, and it did not matter, you all, if you were in the poorest or the hood, the property taxes were sky high versus, you know, the nice neighborhoods, which, of course, they were even higher. I was appalled at the amount of property tax they wanted to charge in the hood when they really didn't even have a full-fledged police department, fire department, infrastructure, I mean, was really at this point null and void, but yet the property taxes were just, they were horrific, all right? Okay, so that's just showing you on the economic side on how the uh, empire, the American empire is basically... It's collapsing, okay? And this even, of course, rolls up to the state level um, where states also are going broke. Now, this is uh, going to 2020, and this was on NPR. States are broke, and many are eyeing massive cuts. The C-19 pandemic could swipe roughly $20 billion from the state coffers by June of next year, according to a, an analysis by the Urban Institute State and Local Finance Initiative, record high unemployment has wrecked havoc on personal income taxes and sales taxes, two of the biggest sources of revenue for states. Hawaii and Nevada's tourism industry have crashed. And states like Alaska, Oklahoma, and Wyoming have been hit by the collapse of oil markets. Yep, remember that? Y'all remember when oil went into the negative? Okay, that's also the sign of the collapse of an empire, of this particular American empire, because remember... This empire was built on the petrodollar, the oil dollar. So meaning when they took the American dollar off the gold standard, all right? And just to put that in perspective to those that are not familiar and those that are, just be patient so we can make sure that we clearly explain when you hear people talk about the dollar be, being taken off the gold standard, all they're meaning is 
for every dollar that is printed, there is an equivalent amount of physical gold, G-O-L-D, to back that dollar. So when the dollar was unpegged or disconnected from gold, that's when this concept came of connecting it to oil, quote, quote, unofficially connecting it to oil, and hence you get the term petrodollar, all right? But what in essence happened is that it was really became a debt note for sure. All right. So what was it backed by? Nothing. Nothing. And you really couldn't even say it was backed by oil. Because oil really wasn't coming from the U.S. like that. Yes, the U.S. has a big oil reserve. But the amount of debt that has been printed, i.e. dollars, certainly could not be backed up by oil. And guess what happened? The value of oil really hit a negative. All right? So, Alaska, Oklahoma, and Wyoming have been hit by the collapse of the oil market, all right? And then lastly, just on the oil, that's why also that the dollar will be gone. That's what you're also witnessing with this collapse of an empire, of the American empire. It is because the dollar will be gone. And they are ushering in yet something else that's backed by faith because that's what the dollar is backed by, faith. In other words, a hope and a prayer. (laughs) They're standing up the cryptocurrency, which no matter how much hype it is given and no matter how much, you know, if you are messing around with cryptocurrency and you are making profit, It is just still nothing but a revision of the dollar because what is it backed by? Faith. A hope and a prayer. All right? All right, so from March through May of this year, so this was in 2020, family, 34 states experienced at least a 20% drop in revenue compared with the same period last year, according to data provided by NPR Uh, by the state, local, and finance institution. Okay, those drops directly affected state budgets. So NPR asked member station reporters to fill us in on what is going on in nearly every state across the U.S. With dwindling cash, cuts to education, health care, and other areas are inevitable In many places, state leaders have described the situation as unprecedented, horrifying, and devastating. Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, compared his state's budget cuts to the red wedding scene in HBO's Game of Thrones. 
Maryland's Governor uh, Larry Hogan, a Republican, said responding to this crisis has created a multi-year budget crisis unlike anything the state has ever faced before, more than three times worse than the Great Recession. So notice, family, how they just do not want to come out and say depression. They always want to throw recession up in there. Although when you look at the numbers, the numbers are depression-ish type numbers. So in other words, they've just rebranded Great Depression with recession. And we've had quite a few recessions as we live through and witness the collapse of an American empire. All right, for example, so far the state has cut nearly $190 million from higher education. Okay, and then we go, they go into, and you all know that this, I'm not going to read it all, but they talk about Congress um, trying to pass the two aid, um, an aid package worth $2 trillion called the CARES Act. Now, remember when we read earlier in that infrastructure article in 2019, what did they say they set aside? How much money did they say they set aside for American infrastructure? Although it needed $4.6 trillion, they said they set aside $2 trillion. And what did I tell y'all? I said, that $2 trillion for the infrastructure is gone. Because of the pandemic, I'm sure they're going to use that $2 trillion for the pandemic. And here you go. What did they give? $2 trillion for the CARES Act. All right? And so um, as we can see, and even as this broadcast, they have a, what is this, the second stimulus going out? Child, I don't know if it's the second or third going out. Another stimulus package going out to the people directly. I think it's $1,400 this time. All right. So, uh, again, just another symptom of what we are witnessing and living through uh, the collapse of an empire. This is across the planet. All right. So what I'm reading to you, although this is U.S., this is still going on across the planet. Now, I have talked about this for years. I told you it was coming, and it's still coming. I told you that they are testing it. So let me just refresh your memory, because I want you to remember this. When they start rolling it out mass across the board. Because they're going to have to, family. They're going to have to roll it out. And what I'm talking about is universal basic income. Right? So let me get into that for those of you that don't know what that means. Universal basic income is also called UBI. (sighs) It is, um, they're calling it, all right, so why are y'all renaming it? Because they're also claiming, this is on Wikipedia, and then we're going to go into an IMF article. I'm just doing wiki to give you the overall definition. So they didn't already, y'all, nicknamed it Unconditional Basic Income. 
citizens' income, citizens' basic income, basic income guarantee, basic living stipend, uh, guaranteed annual income, uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay, is a theoretical government public program for periodic payment delivered to all citizens of a given population without a means, test, or work requirement. A basic income can be implemented nationally, regionally, or locally. If the level is sufficient to meet a person's basic needs, i.e. at or above the poverty line. I think that's key. I think that is key. At or above the poverty line. It is sometimes called a full basic income. If it is less than that amount, it may be called a partial basic income. All right? So let's be clear. You only getting at or above the poverty line. There are several welfare arrangements that can be viewed as a relative or are related, rather, to basic income. In one way or another, many countries have something like a basic income for children, for example, and the pension system, in many cases, also includes a part that is similar to basic income. There are also also quasi-income systems like Bolsa Familia in Brazil, which has been described as a kind of basic income, but it is concentrated to the poor and includes some conditions. The Alaska Permanent Fund, in all essence, a uh, partial basic income with the average payout being $1,600 annually per resident, uh, though the amount varies substantially from year to year. Okay, it says the negative income tax is also strongly related to basic income. Several political discussions are related to the basic income debate, including those regarding, okay, so I'm glad they brought this up in the wiki because I was going to bring it up. So uh, the political discussions around basic incomes include automation and artificial intelligence and the future of work. A key issue in these debates is whether automation and AI will significantly reduce the available jobs and whether a basic income can help alleviate such problems, as well as whether a UBI could be a stepping stone to a resource-based economy or post-scarcity. Okay, so I'm not going to read any more of that because I wanted you just to get an idea for those of you that were not familiar with UBI or universal basic income. All right. So uh, and the presidential candidate, uh, his name, the last name was Wang. He was the one that talked about it during his presidential campaign. And the reasons he mentioned, of course, were uh, automation and artificial intelligence. And he's not the only one that's been talking about it, okay? He was just the one put on the national spotlight because of the election. But you also had Elon Musk talk about it as well as Branson, okay? Now, if you start looking at 
the amount of automation that is going on, it is mind-boggling, family. You have the fast food restaurants that are um, instituting the robots in the back cooking the food. Um, Now, this is going on in the U.S., Over in Asia, they've really, really started to ramp up those games, okay? You have, I saw um, where one particular warehouse was using automation to do the forklifting. I saw where the ports are using uh, the robots to even manage the ports, the shipping containers, Okay, so and we all know about the artificial intelligence. Okay, that's basically programming computers to do logical thinking. And that's also going to replace a lot of jobs. All right. So what you're witnessing is yet another shift from a different type of an economy. So the economy, you know, we went from agricultural when the Americas was being founded, was all about the cotton is king and tobacco and even hemp. We talked about hemp and the importance of hemp, although they don't want to publicly talk about it. But hemp was definitely one of the main crops and profitable crops during early colonization in the Americas. So we went from an agricultural economy to a service economy, all right? So now what we're witnessing are those service jobs are now going to be replaced with automation, okay? And even just the way things will be financed. So banking will change, As we go into the digital cryptocurrency space, the entire banking will change, even the way loans are given. You're going to start hearing things like smart contracts. The infrastructure is already set up. So instead of doing loans, you would do stuff called a smart contract. So the finance world will totally change as well. All right, so let's see what the IMF had to say, honey. The um, International Monetary Fund folk. All right, so this is off their site. Uh, Back to basics. When did they put this out, you all? Don't see a date on this. Oh, 2018, 2018. All right. Back to basics. What is universal basic income? Many governments pay pensions to elderly people or unemployment benefits to those who lose their job or child benefits to families. Cash transfers to households are common in most countries. What is a universal basic income and how is it different from these programs? Universal basic income is an income support mechanism typically intended to reach all or a very large portion of the population with 
uh, no or minimum conditions. Discussions around universal basic income can be heated both in a scholarly content and in public discourse, and there is no established common understanding. Very different income support programs are often labeled universal basic income, even when they have little in common or do not aim at the same goal. Many ongoing and prospective experiments with universal basic income around the world refer to very different interventions. Examples including cash transfers to a selected group of unemployed people for a short period of time, that's in Finland, to adults for 12 years in Kenya, and to randomly chosen households in California. I told you, y'all, they was testing UBI um, in the U.S. This diversity reflects the absence of a unified definition and assessment methodology in both the literary and the literature, rather, and policy discourse. All right, um, so I'm just gonna skip through a lot of this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Um, Universally, or means that they're saying a, a very large coverage of individuals in a society and unconditionally, or very broad condition in provision, as in the case of um, whoever this Atkinson's proposal was back up in the day in 1996. Okay, um, so. <sighs> This was coming from the IMF family in 2018, okay? That's when they chose to talk about it publicly in an article because they know that the way that the empire is currently being financed is changing, okay? So... You can even go as far as to say, and I will say in my opinion, it is definitely a planned collapse. It's been a slow collapse, I would say, over the past whew, minimum 30 years. Minimum 30 years. And we can point to when the U.S. started shipping jobs overseas manufacturing, steel. That was starting the, the planning of the collapse of the empire as we know it today. All right? Now, you know, some of the results of this collapse of an empire, we know what comes with that. All right? I talked about it last week a little bit when I put out uh, what is going on in Atlanta with the violence so you have a rise in crime, a rise in violence. Uh, you also have a rise in homelessness, which California and New York are the highest in the U.S. as far as homelessness goes, right? And anybody that has been remotely keeping up with California or if you live in California, I don't have to tell you all that. All you have to do is walk down, uh, I'm sorry, walk out your door. You see that. And um, one article says, 
uh, this is off the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, says since 2020, L.A.'s homelessness has risen by 12.7%. Okay, and it's probably higher than that, family. Um, You know, there's a lot of great YouTubers out there that have been tracking this on the front line. And when I tell you a lot of the places when I would visit California, you would go to chill and as tourist attractions, you would always see homelessness in L.A. And uh, the homeless folks would approach you, you know, ask for some money or food or whatever the case may be. So it's not like you never saw them, but the grand scale of it now it's just unreal. It's just unreal. Venice Beach, woo, chow, it's a hot mess. Um, you have a lot of those um, stores and stuff that are essentially closing down on Venice Beach. And the pandemic pretty much put the nail in the coffin on that. All right. And I'm sure the pandemic directly also, you know, boosted up the homeless population as well, okay? So, family, just get ready, all right? I don't want this to be a doom and gloom. This is just awareness. It's right there in front of our face. They have been preparing in an indirect way the public for quite some time now. They started preparing when the jobs started being shipped overseas. And you had that portion of the population that were, you know, able to sustain a family in their household quite comfortably in middle class status being bumped down to lower middle class to poor status or survival status when they were forced to take service jobs, okay? So you had a huge shift in the middle class. So now we're at the final stage where even those service jobs that don't pay a lot, now they're getting ready to be obsolete because of robotics. And guess what? Yet again, some of those middle class jobs as well. We're talking every industry will be touched. Even the insurance industry, I saw where now they have software, artificial intelligence software, that can pretty much create these insurance policies, write their insurance policies, pay out the claims, etc. Even the medical industry, it'll, they're getting to the point where they are programming robotics to do these surgeries. All right? So we already talked about the warehouses, which those jobs had already been low, So now they're bringing the robotics into the warehouse, okay? And there's a great documentary, um, forgive me, I can't 
uh, remember it, where um, China bought a uh, manufacturing plant. It was a glass plant, a glass. I think they made windshields. Don't quote me on that, but it was some type of glass plant over in the U.S. They basically came over here, instituted a bunch of changes, and the town was happy because the folks were like, hey, you know, we get to keep our job. They came over, instituted some changes that made it difficult for the American uh, workers to adjust. Then they started bringing more of their management over. And then guess what they ultimately did? They pretty much pulled the factory because they went robotic. So in other words, they were going to do that anyway. They only use the saving the jobs as a guise to get that particular company. And so those same particular workers wind up being out of work anyway. And they had a miserable, I can't remember if it was two years tops that that particular factory stayed open. And we continue to see that with manufacturing throughout. No matter how many grants that the federal government decides to give or the uh, state and local government decides to give to these companies, they ultimately either send the work overseas, not either, they do. They just send the work overseas. And even overseas, They are getting to the point where it's better for them to just spend the money on the machinery than to even pay the people the lower wages. All right. So this is why it is a collapse of an empire across the globe. All right. They are preparing you for the new economic system, which will be pretty, pretty slim from a middle-class perspective. It it is literally going to be family, the ultra-wealthy, and they boys them. So meaning if your particular skill set is not of... uh, Beyond being in touch with AI and robotics, you will be fitting in that category of needing to depend on UBI. Now, from a spiritual perspective, why is this happening? Because you have a change in the frequency. So meaning Mother Earth's frequency has risen And any currency that these empires use, they match that currency based on the frequency. So because Mother Earth's frequency is changing, their currency must change as well. And including the technology, that must change as well. That's what the whole, you know, going up to... um, the the um 5g stuff the 5g stuff 
That's what that was about. It was matching the planet's frequency from a technology standpoint. And they're still behind with the 5G, right? So the good part of this from a spiritual perspective is that you definitely have access to much more higher frequency energy to create things that you want and that you need. The flip side of that, if you are depending on these same systems and these same empires, you are leaving yourself extremely, extremely vulnerable. So what should you be doing? You all should know me if you've been rocking with me for any length of time. You should be creating the world you want to live in. You should be becoming self-sufficient. That's physically. Spiritually, you should be creating with your consciousness the world you want to live in. You have that ability. All right, family. So I hope that you have gotten some use out of this. Uh, Again, you are really in a wonderful, wonderful time. You, we are seeing some incredible things, some shocking things. But if you know why these things are happening, you can put it in a different perspective. So I wish everyone well on this Monday. Peace and love, family. <laughs>